0: Welcome to Centering Centers, a pod network podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. The pod network is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members professional learning through meaningful and sustained interaction. This podcast is an initiative led by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of POD. To get more involved in the DRI committee or this podcast, just send us an email at dri podnetwork.org. Welcome to Season 4 of the Centering Centers podcast. I'm Lindsay Dukopoulos at Auburn University in Alabama. I will be hosting this season, which focuses on internationalizing perspectives in educational development. This is episode 23 of the Centering Centers podcast. This is the first of a two-part interview with Dr. Arshad Ahmad, vice chancellor of LUMS, which is the top-ranked university in Pakistan. In part one of our conversation, Dr. Ahmad shares his journey from a professor of accounting who struggled with his teaching to 3M National Teaching Fellow, Canada's most prestigious recognition of teaching at the post-secondary level, to director of the McPherson Institute at McMaster University, and now to the ultimate leadership role at Lums. His story is of interest to all educational developers, but will be particularly inspiring to those on the path to provost, president, or other distinguished leadership positions. All right, Arshad, we are so excited to talk to you today. And I want to start off just by inviting you to tell us a little bit about how you came to the work of educational development and where you're at now.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you, and Jay, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you've invited me. And here we are, um, well, on Zoom, but, you know, I'm, I don't know, 13, 14,000 kilometers away. So it's nice to be so connected, so near yet so far. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, so, you know, a little bit about myself. I've um, uh, been born and raised in Pakistan. Uh, which is a young country of, I don't know, 75 years old or or, or more. Um, and I left when I was a youngster in 1976. And I went to Montreal, Canada, where I did my bachelor's uh, in a uh, business school um, and then went on to uh, do an MBA um, at uh, McGill. So my first degree was at Concordia University, then at McGill. Um, And then I did what I promised my father I would do, which is to become an accountant. Uh, I had no idea that this was such a bad deal for me because that was not my (laughs) area of first choice. But, you know, uh, you do things, uh, at least in certain cultures, to uh, honor uh, the wishes of your parents. And in his case, it was a sort of a bargain where... He said, if you don't choose this, then uh, you're on your own and uh, I'm not going to uh, support you. So uh, at that time, I think he was quite right because we had no idea what we were going to do with our lives, uh, my brother and I. And so I was the first one who kind of was a little more in, let's say, curious or pushing the boundaries. And um, once, as soon as I finished my accounting diploma after the master's degree, I did the uh, accounting designation, and I said, "I've you know, <laughs> I've done my part." <laughs> and uh, what I really want to do is um, something that uh, uh, you know is, is certainly has to be more exciting than this. This is not what I'm cut out to do. Um, and yet, I will say one thing as a sneak preview that that particular designation now in the role that I have <laughs> is absolutely essential. I mean, I'm the only guy around the a senior management team who understands balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements and it i thank my father you know so many years later that he made me go through something that uh, uh, you know has helped me so much and it was an insight uh, that you know uh, he used to say uh, uh, don't uh, do too many things in excess because that's what the west is known for except for one thing and that is learning uh, you should just uh, you know immerse yourself with anything that interests you as far as you're as 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 long as you're learning and and that has stuck with me as a sort of a mantra that opened many doors for me so um i was tutoring for and this is probably a typical story for many developers so i was tutoring for a, a professor at mcgill who was teaching cross cultural management and she got sick and she said can you take my class and i did and I found my calling was really in in the classroom and in front of uh, young people. I, I was fairly young at that time. Yeah, so. I bet. <laughs> Just <laughs> this back in thrown 81.
0: into <laughs> trial by fire.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so um, uh, I, I started uh, teaching then uh, in that year. And um, at that time, you know, universities were in a, I think, in a certain boom cycle where access was a big issue and so they were massifying and becoming huge uh, you know universities that went from 5000 students to i don't know 30000 40000 uh, that those kind of numbers is where i found myself in so people like me who were interested in uh, uh, lecturing teaching were uh, valued mm-hmm. in that sense even though i learned as many people who get into the stream of uh, uh, teaching uh, that it felt like I was a poor cousin amongst those who were, uh, uh, you know, uh, more focused on our research agendas. Not that I didn't have one, but remember, I didn't have a PhD then. Right. So I went on to uh, continue teaching, which was my passion, and I became a teaching machine. I must say, I was moonlighting and teaching everywhere because of the demand. Um, so I would teach uh, from perhaps uh, 9 or 10 in the morning right until 11 at night. And I remember I had a semester where I taught eight courses. That must have been a record uh, for most of my peers.
0: That's that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs>
1: it was like you know. And it how many students different.
0: did you have? Do you remember?
1: Oh, the student uh, classes were anywhere from twenty to uh, uh, fifty or sixty. You know, and um, the. Um, depended on the pedagogy. So if you're doing a case course, they're usually smaller classes, but uh, in lecture style, they were much bigger. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what this did was it gave me an understanding of uh, the kinds of skills, uh, how skill-based teaching and learning, especially at that time, I was a very teacher focused guy, uh, only thinking about myself, me and I, (laughs) <laughs> and how, you know, my ratings would improve and I was sort of obsessed as a young man trying to prove himself in a domain where, um, you know, you wouldn't get recognition unless you were really good at your craft. So I was getting these annual contracts and then three-year contracts and five-year contracts. Um, and, and then in 1992, something strange happened, which was a phone call from a, a, a person at uh, McMaster who said, uh, well, you, you've been just recognized as one of the national teaching fellows uh, in Canada, which is, they choose 10. This is the 3M company that started this fellowship program. It's a lifetime fellowship. I said, you've got the wrong guy. <laughs> it's not possible <laughs> for me to have this kind of a honor. And so it was the kind of imposter syndrome that, you know, a lot of people go through when they get this kind of recognition. And And while it stroked my ego, that's for sure, it just felt like a burden because all of a sudden people were asking me questions about uh, theories of learning and theories of change and development. And I didn't have a clue. I was teaching finance, you know. I have
0: spreadsheets. Uh, That's what I have. I, have spreadsheets.
1: <laughs> I was teaching international business, finance, management courses. I had, didn't have a clue. I didn't know a single theory of learning. I didn't know who Bloom was or, you know, anything in the literature. And that was a reawakening for me. so uh, another critical milestone for me was the realization that you know teaching is more than a performant performative act, and uh, it has to be anchored in frameworks and in theory and evidence and all of the good stuff we now talk about under the uh, banner of uh, scholarship of both teaching and learning and And you know, I started getting interested in this uh, after that award. I started going to conferences. My first conference was AAHE, believe it or not, at the time when, you know, you had, uh, uh, I think it was Rick Edgerton, who was the president at that time, and Shulman, and uh, all these big names. And I was going there and listening to these people, just, Boyer had just come out with his book. And, uh, you know, that was the Bible for me. I said, scholarship reconsidered. No, this was the first book. The first book that he wrote. Uh, We're going way back. Old school. (laughs) Old school, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was called Scholarship Reconsidered. You're right. Um, But then there were many, there were a a couple of iterations that he came up with, right? So that was something I would flag to every peer of mine in the finance department and say, look, you know, teaching is a scholarly act. (laughs) What are you guys doing? (laughs) We need to uh, broaden our horizons. So I was like a missionary at that time. Uh, trying to spread the word, but with no credentials, because they said, what do you know? You don't have a PhD. So that prompted me to do one. And uh, at that point, you know, having had national recognition as a teacher, I did get some, uh, uh, I would say, waivers in the program at McGill, where I joined in the uh, educational psychology program. And it was wonderful, because I was being taught by people I used to go to conferences with, and, you know, then it, it became a sort of a, um, a, a wonderful experience of uh, conversations uh, with uh, like-minded folks uh, who found refuge in these conferences. And uh, so it was pod. I went to pod conferences. Um, I went to uh, uh, the Society for Teaching and Learning in Higher Ed or uh, STLHE in Canada. I went to the Australian ones, the UK ones. So I was just, you know, I found a window much, much bigger than my disciplinary world, which was finance, which was one of the biggest departments in the country. And, uh, you know, here I was on a PhD program where every my peers were saying, don't do it. Don't do it because no one will be able to assess your work and you won't get tenure. You're just going to be, you know, swimming in an ocean of who knows what. But when you find something you love and you uh, are... Uh, absolutely uh, hungry to uh, motivated to learn, then no one can stop you. And and that was my journey in the program, which I ate up. I think I finished the PhD while doing full time work within four years. Um, and uh, uh, my uh, thesis at that time, I, I started dabbling with technology a lot. And uh, so you know now we talk about MOOCs, but mm-hmm. this is now back in 1999, where the internet—you'll uh, you, remember the days when you know you had
0: uh, dial-up uh, and you had dial-up,
1: <laughs> you had Netscape, right? And you had these browsers and uh, which all had these uh, little blue uh, 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 fonts and and all that and all the noises that came out. I was anyway. thinking of
0: the noise. I think that has been burned <laughs> into us. Our...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the floppy disks and all the rest. You know, all all of the technologies were coming on board and. And it was another revolution and so on. Anyway, I wanted to validate um, a theory of learning, a model of learning, on, on the uh, World Wide Web, which is what it was called then, uh, the Www. You know, what are you going to uh, uh, do uh, to validate, um, uh, you know, what I felt were certain um, uh, prompts and certain uh, uh, designs on uh, an online environment, and and this is this could be synchronous or asynchronous. Um, that would be substantiated in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is uh, uh, something that delighted me because I needed data, like any PhD student. I thought if I get fifty students in this course that I'm going to teach with my model, you know, I'll be a happy camper. Well, guess what, Lindsay. I got 500 people enrolling in a course in 1999 and all of a sudden, this was a revolution because the dean, he said to me, wow, one person teaching 500 students, I can, I can suddenly see dollars. Cha-ching! To- <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, for once I was given a lot of attention by the folks with the resources to start uh, What we called then eConcordia, which was a sort of e-learning platform for our so platform learning was something that you know began um, as my course and a couple of other people like me who who made the contributions and um, so so that was a sort of a turning point for me to understand that you know if you want to have impact you need to think about scale Um, so. Finishing my degree, um, good news, I did get tenure in a finance department, even though I was an outsider as far as the tribe was concerned. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, it was just a wonderful journey from there on because uh, I found that I could do a lot more uh, when I talked to people who brought in a very different perspective to problems we were having. So, you know, the, a lot of us are just problem solvers as teachers. We solve problems, uh, not only within our discipline, but we solve problems that are very social uh, related to behavior and to psychology and to, you know, um, building confidence and empowering people and being inclusive. and, and Capturing attention,
0: about, keeping attention. Yeah, absolutely,
1: that's absolutely to engage. Everything is. Yeah. yeah. This is, the, this is the, the story about humanity, right? It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful profession where you get a chance to do that. Um, and increasingly I found the people very much interested in this dimension were developers, educational developers. Um, and they came from all of these different uh, disciplines, You know, geographers and physicists and historians. And so the more I talked to them, the more fascinated I began. Uh, in my journey to really think of interdisciplinarity as a key focus for development. So how do you marry interdisciplinarity in professional development? And and this is what centers were actually doing. So I I found a very nice home in uh, centers who uh, came to these conferences. And so uh, two other key things happened here. By the way, this is a very long-winded answer to one. You know, question. this
0: is bad. Fa- I've got some follow-up questions I'm going to ask, but please finish this. This okay. uh, it's an epic story. It's it's really interesting, though, and yeah, I could kind um, of see the different conversations that have happened over the you
1: know, yeah. The uh, so I'm sorry if I'm rambling on, on a experience. bit, but no, it's so fine. There's something really interesting that happened. Is um, this fellowship program I talked about the lifetime fellowship program? It began in 1986. And then um, uh, in, I'm forgetting the year now, but I think it was 2000 or something where the program coordinator said, well, would you like to run the program? And that was beyond the moon for me because can you imagine meeting 10 of the best teachers in the country and the reward for the program, the way it's structured is you basically spend four days together. And have conversations. So back to the whole business of critical conversations. And and you know, Lindsay, we could we, we used to tell them each year, hey, we'll tell you when breakfast is and when lunch is and when dinner is. But the rest of the day, it's up to you to do what you want. And there's so many choices. We we went to a very exotic place each year, which was uh, Montebello Chateau Montebello. It's one of the largest log cabins in Quebec. And then we went uh, also to El. Al- Um, to um, out west, um, near Banff, uh, where there's just amazing mountains. Uh, And so, you know, they could have chosen to do anything, but these 10 people would almost always decide to spend the four days talking. (laughs) And that's all they did. They talked and talked, and they bonded, and they spilled their guts out to each other, and they talked about the challenges and their journeys. my role was to simply facilitate and listen to them. So can you imagine just what a supreme privilege this was in, uh, uh, you know, each year? And I did this for 10 years. That's I did a dream it, you know, job. Out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why dream. You leave,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, if, if I had to go away uh, to another life now, I'm fulfilled with, as far as, uh, uh, you know, Learning from others is concerned in the sense that uh, of that satisfaction you get from listening to people who are really accomplished in their fields, but are concerned about a another metaverse. And I don't mean the virtual world here. Right. I mean the kind of meta thinking about those issues that really you know matter and if i can summarize those issues in three themes that almost always came across in these conversations which might be helpful for our educational developer friends one of them was almost always about respecting students and what we now call being learner centered and uh, you know uh, the student experience of course this is not new <clears throat> but i must say the the depth in which the The kind of uh, humility and the kind of uh, um, um, ethos that was created around almost single handedly always putting the student first in whatever discussion that was going on was an eye opener for me. That these people meant business, you know, and you could not uh, just talk the talk, but you had to walk that talk. Yeah. So one of those themes that throughout always came up was being student-centered. The other was what Shulman used to, uh, and has coined, and we all talk about, you know, the pedagogical content expertise. That really came through in these conversations because, you know, the geographer talked about teaching geography in the way that she did, whereas the physicist had a very different angle to it, as would the historian or the business person or what have you. So... Uh, an appreciation for how connected things are, even though disciplines are very, very uh, unique in in terms of their depth and, and almost they, they, they turn into jargon that is, un, that is not understandable to uh, uh, you know non-experts, what these people were doing were translating that into what I would call uh, what my grandmother would understand. You know, so right. so they made the complex very simple, but they also connected the dots. And, and that was very influential in my own career, subsequently in leadership positions that, you know, if you don't know, then just bring people together and they will figure it out. Trust them. Um, as long as they trust each other and as long as they trust a process, then solutions will come. But be very clear about the problem and the many layers uh you know uh, the kind of grand challenge problems that we often talked about um, were ones where solutions never came from one discipline almost never and, and in reality, when you know you had more professional people like law let's say lawyers or engineers um and even some of the uh, uh let's say um science folks uh, on the practical side, uh, they would almost always uh, 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 talk about these uh, interconnections. So, So this was an eye opener. This is the second part, the disciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity. Now we call it transdisciplinarity, which is a sort of an extreme version of the intersections where disciplines meet. Um, was something that got really firmly implanted in my head, and I learned a lot from, from those views. Um, the third, I, I guess the third part was, um, uh, uh, you, you know, the way we can give more value um, and and, in fact, elevate uh, the role of teaching excellence, which has to go beyond the vision mission statements that you we all we all read and and then sometimes go well that's good enough for a, a brochure or a website but uh, you know how is it enacted in in the in the structures of the university um and i learned a lot about the the way in which you know while i think at heart um uh, you any any university leader will tell you that the core business is uh, both research teaching and and service um, and they'll tell you how connected those are. Um, but when you start looking at the roles and rewards, and when you start looking at uh, the uh, sort of incentives and the career progression made you, you know pathways in in universities it seems to be like a pendulum that you know goes from one end to another. And young universities, I found, have been more on the side of teaching excellence. And as they start to become bigger, or they start wanting to play the rankings game, or when they start getting a niche um, to compete with other universities, then... Research uh, the- starts to... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and I always used to think of them as sort of competing with each other because that was my experience. Yeah, um, and and yet it was a struggle uh, that had reasons why this was happening. You know, there, there's a reason why uh, leaders give more resources to research, and and the reasons why structures are the way they are. And if we want to change them, then we have to have a compelling narrative for that to happen, not on the basis of equity, but on the basis of uh, things that really matter to the institution. Transformational, in,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yes, and its role in
1: society, you know? So, I mean, what are universities there for? And you have to ask those hard questions about, you know, what are we trying to accomplish at the end of the day? And 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 are we doing it better through um, innovation, um, and and through impact uh, in broadening knowledge uh, and contributing to it, uh, whether it's a discovery knowledge or whether it's integrative knowledge or applied knowledge. But um, why is it that we cannot also give as much prestige and as, as much uh, uh, dignity to the, uh, um, the art of teaching, the, the scholarly aspects of teaching, and even to recognize that? Uh, and the role of students in in, in all of this. So um, this third aspect was, again, these conversations were very helpful because if you try and do that in an institution as a leader, which I'll talk about a little bit if you like later, um, then those were important lessons for me to learn uh, during those conversations. So I always draw on my experience in the fellowship program for 10 years, but then subsequently, while this was happening, uh, like Peter Felton, who uh, got more and more involved in, in the leadership aspects of of the organizations he was part of, um, and I, I, I spent a lot of time with him in ISOTL. I spent a lot of time with him in uh, <coughs> you know the uh, international uh, uh, developers, um, where we used to meet annually in an exotic country somewhere.
0: said uh, that international ICID, yes.
1: consortium of...
0: Educational Education developers,
1: developers, yeah. developers, yes, uh, with said, so I was vice president there, um, and, and then in my own society, which is STLHE, uh, where I was president for, for uh, five years. So I, I think those kinds of um, uh, organizations helped me to see uh, the scope and impact that one can have provincially, nationally, and internationally. Have you Uh, written about
0: these these themes or this experience where you were administrating that program with the fellows? I'm sure that would be probably a novel on that.
1: (laughs) We had three articles published on this about the fellowship program because we felt it was quite unique. And, you know, uh, my dream was to bring similar fellows from around the world together to form a meta fellowship. And we almost did that. Uh, We had Carnegie fellows meet with us. <clears throat> we had fellows from Australia and the UK program had this enormous program. Every second brother you would meet was a fellow of some sort <laughs> you know, or sister. <laughs> that was fascinating. So they were giving out, I don't know, 60, 70 awards each year nationally. Uh, and they've, you know, it also had its ups and downs, but we would meet regularly. We met in Prince Edward Island. We met in uh, um, uh, uh, San Francisco was it in san francisco san diego uh, so we met in a we we once met in uh, uh, i believe in uh, uh, nottingham so we started this network of networks you see of teaching fellows uh, that you that were recognized nationally and some great things started to happen as a result uh, where we found common ground and special projects to do so yes there's some stuff written up where we wanted to learn from each other's models
0: that's great. I'll get those links from you and share them in our our show notes. I'm sure, sure. Thing. To learn I'd about be happy that. To, happy is there
1: to, anything? Is there anything
0: as you've kind of like grown in this work that you would add to that list of three? So you talked about respect for students, the kind of transdisciplinarity as a theme that emerges, and then the the what was the last one? The elevating teaching excellence as being important yeah. to real yeah. kind of <clears throat> cultural. What is there a is there a new one you would add, or one you would, tweak one would in add, some way?
1: <laughs> yeah, is is the one I've discovered more so more intensely being in coming back to Pakistan uh, in this position, which I, I I didn't apply for this job. Um, it just you know many of these positions I didn't apply for; they just happened, and and when they come your way, uh, you know, as Leonard Cohen says in his famous song, uh, where, "When there's a crack in the wall." you let the light come in. Um, and, and that's basically what's been the story of my leadership positions is <laughs> there was some crack somewhere, <laughs> some light started to come in. And I just, uh, uh, you know, uh, decided uh, I, I, I'm going to embrace that. So um, the part that I was a reawakening for me is to come back to a country that I had left for, I don't know, 45 years and and then come back um, in a, in a role that I, I didn't have any experience in. I've I've never been a vice chancellor uh, in my previous uh, positions. And can you
0: tell us what your role is now in case folks don't? Sure.
1: Sure. So the vice chancellor is the equivalent of the president of the university. So it's, you know, the buck stops here, which which means as insofar as uh, the position is, has a lot of power, um, more the prime minister than a, than a president, I would say. The VC is more on the British model than it is on the American one. Um, uh, here in a small university uh, like ours, I noticed that it's just too much power. The concentration of power in allocating resources and in all kinds of administrative decisions, academic decisions, it's all was with the vice chancellor. And so um, that has changed in the last four years. I can briefly tell you a few things I've done here. But what I realized was, I don't think I'm qualified for this job. Um, And uh, when they interviewed me, uh, they asked me to give a talk. I didn't know they were actually... uh, sort of doing a search through the talk, um, you know, I I spilled the beans and I said, look, if you guys, when they asked me for the interview, if you guys want me, here are my priorities. This is what I'm good at. This is what I can do for your university. If there's a fit, let's do it. Otherwise, I don't feel qualified for this job. (laughs) You better find someone (laughs) who who you probably can, who's much better than me. Um, But you know, some things, I guess, are meant to happen, and uh, it's, a, it's a question of timing, it's a question of luck, um, and it's a question of uh, fit. Um, so, in, in my case, all of those three things happened uh, almost four years ago, um, and, um, um, you know, the role here uh, is, if you look at the structure here, this is a, I would call this a startup university, a small university. Uh, it's only 35 years old. We have about 5,000 students. We have over 45 academic programs. Uh, we have five schools. The oldest one is the business school, uh, which it gave the name that it and the reputation it has because it followed the Harvard model. In fact, um, uh, people from Harvard came here to get the uh, school started. The first dean was from. Uh, um, uh, University of Western Ontario in Canada, which is also a case-based school. Um, and so a lot of the stuff was imported in the sense of setting up the parameters of, of, of teaching, which were, which mm-hmm. were cases. And that was its niche. It got known for its uh, impact on uh, producing managers, which this country sorely needed at that time. So, uh, you know, the rigor, the standards, the, the, merit-based system in which people are in it's it is an elite school here and it is now I am very proud to say that uh, this business school has got AACSB accreditation which only five percent of uh, business schools in the world have and it's the only one in Pakistan that has this uh, accreditation and they're doing really very innovative stuff Um, uh, for example uh, last uh, year we started Every graduate program gives a 50% scholarship to women. So, you know, usually business is male-dominated, and so here, uh, by giving access to more talented and deserving women, the whole dynamic has changed. The classroom setting has changed. the 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 way in which we talk about inclusivity and, and gender has changed. So, things like this have been going on in this school, and and so I. I I'm just spending a little time on the business school because it's been so uh, important in establishing the identity of of the university. But along with the business school, the largest school now is the humanities and social sciences school. We have the most qualified economists in the country all packed in here. Um, uh, We have uh, uh, some amazing uh, writers, languages, literature, history, Anthropology, all of that stuff is happening in in that school. And then about 12 years ago, uh, we came up with an experiment of combining science and engineering into one school. And so this was the original idea of a no boundaries uh, um, structure. So the pure sciences and the sort of more professional engineering and um, uh, computer science and, and what have you. You know, it's a such a great mixture here where people are basically working uh, uh, just like a center would.
0: So you have kind of touched on, I don't know if you were intending to, but you've touched on this idea of respecting students. You're giving scholarships and bringing in more diversity. You've also talked about your transdisciplinarity, combining schools in kind of innovative ways. What about elevating teaching? What are you doing for that?
1: Yes <laughs> so i'll just I'll tell you about two more schools because we have two more. We have Absolutely. a school of law uh, which is more professional school, and two years ago we started a school of Education, which is the biggest sector in Pakistan because, as we were discussing earlier, <laughs> you've got a lot of young people in this country, um you know, two out of three people are under thirty, and we have a population of two hundred and twenty million uh, the, being the fifth most populous country in the world so there's a huge sector, can you imagine the impact of doing uh, educational interventions in a country like this? It's just, know, uh, uh, it's mind boggling really. But your question is really apt because that's what I said at the interview. I said, folks, you're getting someone here who's really going to push on the teaching excellence front. I see what you guys have done with tenure and promotion which was introduced about 12 years ago here. And people are sort of grabbing onto that framework, but I also notice, and I've heard that, you know, things you excelled in before the pedagogical emphasis is being lost as a result of this shift that is taking place. So I'm going to be really looking at faculty to build structures here to promote teaching excellence. So what exactly has been done? Well, the first thing was to focus on <clears throat> governance so i'll talk about three things Go- governance <clears throat> i'll talk about uh uh, um, uh career progression how do people you know get promoted and uh, uh the the third of course would be the student experience itself what are, what are some visible changes that have taken place so with governance you know um you need to have um um you know, the the top leadership committed, not just just the vice chancellor, but you need your deans and your provost to champion teaching and to get them to make it part of their agendas as a priority. So engaging the deans uh, meant, in my case, again, pure luck. I hired all the deans here because their terms were ending. So when I came in, I said, this is a crazy job you're giving me. I don't have a team. In a year from now, all the deans will be gone. And they said, take it as an opportunity. You can hire them. (laughs) I said, but I don't know anyone here. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we went through search companies and and we did it properly with uh, all the checks and balances. But I had my say and I could, you know, sort of see if the person... Uh, would be emphasizing uh, pedagogy in in their own vision for leading the school. So that was a great boon in having someone uh, 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 join in the senior teams. So that was one piece of the governance. The second part was the budgets. You see, when you give a a dean an envelope of money and you say, okay, you got to work with this, they always want more. And then they always look at their buddies and they say, "Well, why is this guy getting more, or why are you know why don't we have this?" And I mean, just like in a family where your kids want uh, more pocket money or uh, you know they want something for Christmas that the other person is not getting, it believe it or not, it comes down to these kinds of.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. believe it. I've got tiny children, and if the other one has it, it doesn't matter what it is. It's the possession of the other one that. <laughs> sparks the the desire so i think that's a human
1: trait (laughs) because the more transparent you are the more they see what other people have and transparency has its limits too in the sense that if you're if you're going to just work on a fully democratic transparent model and you decentralize everything nothing gets done because all they do is they talk and they squabble and and they don't see what the university priorities are so uh, i learned a few hard lessons about that as well uh, not uh, not that i uh, don't want to be transparent but but that there are stages in which you show certain uh, pieces of information some that are you know it's like a federation you you want to uh, give more to those who don't have enough uh, uh, students and especially graduate programs they, they are money eaters they they just consume a lot of money especially in science and engineering they're very expensive faculties. So other faculties say, we have the students, but you're giving them the money, so what's going on? Anyway, um, teaching had to play a certain role here, and that's where I uh, the, the second part of setting up a center came in. It was really important for me to bring my expertise uh, with the experience I had with centers, because I've been living, breathing, eating <laughs> in a center in my previous role for five years at McMaster. And that center, I had such a wonderful provost who gave me a carte blanche. Spend whatever you want as long as you can demonstrate impact. And he meant business. Every week he met with me. Every week he would ask me about progress. uh, uh, What kind of impact
0: was he looking
1: for? Or what? Oh, my goodness. So he was looking for... (laughs) He, he was interested of course in faculty development. So that was one big area. And then, you know, he asked me, what do you want to do? So I gave him a long list. I said, I want to do student partnerships. I want uh, to have a distinguished scholar program. I, I want to bring all the tech folks in uh, and start producing courses. We wanted, I, I think we should be making MOOCs, you know, uh, I just had an incredibly long list, and he just held me up to it. He said, well, you want to do all this? You need money. Um, You have to raise some, and I'll match it. So at that time, the Ontario government was just, there was a lot of calls, and we just kept winning grants, and they were being matched by the university. So, you know, we ended up with something like 60 people in our center. That's a pretty big center. That's very big. Uh, Yep. So we had, yes, we had professional development, educational development, we had technology. We also had quality assurance. So there's a whole thing about um, um, program enhancement. So the whole curricular business was also being done. and, And then we had student partnerships. So those were the four focus areas. And I thought, well, since I've Built something and um, I've had a lot of success uh, at McMaster. Uh, McMaster in fact, won the Global Teaching Excellence Award from Times Higher Education. And it was the second university in the world to win it, um, which was a pretty good accomplishment uh, given that McMaster had a wonderful history of pedagogical leadership through problem-based learning, and inquiry learning that was born at McMaster in their health sciences uh, departments and and schools. So for me, uh, how do you take this and bring it to another country with a different culture and different values and a much younger university? So uh, just to rewind, as I was mentioning earlier, the the young university uh, startup that we are And I speak to many universities like that in South Asia, uh, and I would say in the developing countries. So this more or less applies with a lot of other vice chancellors I've been meeting and regional meetings we have and and, and all of that. And to build a center here uh, cannot be done if other parts aren't in place. You know, uh, otherwise it will be what perhaps centers were in in the United States or in Canada back in the early 70s. You know, at that time, centers were one or two people or three people and someone had a crazy idea to do a workshop and wow, that became a center. Uh, whereas you don't, we've learned too much to really go back and start that way. So we have to leapfrog into a space where we can do some meaningful activities that would really support faculty, but also contribute to scholarship. So, the model uh, I'm promoting here is um, one of an institute rather than one of a center. So, an institute is quasi center, quasi research, you know, scholarly. It's seen that way. The optics of an institute are very important. Uh, uh, in In the culture I find myself in um, and i I think the service model is very important and it 's good, but it often gets uh i would say diminished uh because it's you know it 's what the library does or it 's what uh, some other um, advancement does or some other support unit does but if you wanted to count as a school would, then it should have the ability to give certificates, run programs, earn its own income and not just be reliant on central funds. So uh, the funding model is very important for a center so it can stand on its own feet and not be at the discretion of a vice chancellor or a provost who says, I'm not interested in this stuff. So I'm just going to dismantle it. And I've seen that happen by the way uh in, in in many universities where it, it all depends on the new president. Yeah all we've, on the new guy you know
0: yeah see you <laughs>
1: yeah and I mean it's it's crazy. You 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 do five years, ten years of good work, you built a culture, you built support systems and then one guy or one it's usually a guy. <laughs> they come along <laughs> you know? and they just they have different priorities. It's not that it's not that this is wrong as far as that leader is concerned. It's just that's not their priority. Yeah, I've got a
0: good friend that that happened to. New mm-hmm. leadership came in and they just disbanded the center. Yeah. Luckily, she had tenure, so she was able to stay on. But it was shocking how it's fast shocking. her whole <laughs> career trajectory just took a, a 180 because somebody decided that wasn't
1: Absolutely. a priority. Right. And and so in research intensive universities, this can happen when, especially when their budget cuts, they go after, you know, uh, HR related or anything related. What I mean, they actually think some, some presidents think centers are like HR departments, which is so absurd and not understanding that this is a core function of uh, learning. I mean, learning is what the university is all about. And this is what centers are supposed to be, um, uh, you know, um, um, routing in, into the system, so it's a system idea, system way of thinking, where you have to. I'm trying to create something here at Lums, where a center would live, whether I'm here or not. It's not. It's not a pet project of a vice chancellor, but it has to be part of the budgeting systems. Deans have to be involved, and uh, the leadership. Uh, is one where, you know, it would be very hard to distangle or, or to remove because there would be tenured people working there.
0: That was part one of our interview with Dr. Arshad Ahmad, Vice Chancellor of LUMs, Pakistan's top university. In part two, he will share more about the impact his leadership is having on the teaching and learning culture at LUMs and across Pakistan.